know about a couple of fun things coming up. We've got a worship night scheduled that's going to be very special. February 26th at 7 p.m. Make sure that you put that up. We're going to talk about it later, too. Step out of the shadows. Step out of the grave. Break into the wild. And don't be afraid. Run into wide open spaces. Grace is waiting for you. Dance like the weight has been lifted. Grace is waiting. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Where the Spirit
this day. We love that death cannot win, that death is gone. Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It is wrapped up in the resurrection of the one who saved each and every one of us. This day, Father, we lift up all of the sufferings in this place. We lift the sufferings that are at home. We lift up the people who are struggling to find you this day. God, we know that there are those who are suffering with pain, with just stuff going on in their lives that could be emotional pain, physical pain, all kinds. But God, we know that it is through Jesus Christ that we have the victory. 
And for that, we are so grateful. May you touch our pastor this morning, that his words would be clear, cut to our hearts, that as we take your word out of this place this day, we would take it and be your representative, be Jesus' feet to a world that needs to know that Jesus truly saves. God, in a place and time when we're all trying to figure out what's going on and where we are and who's in control and let us always know, God, may we ever hear that small, still voice that tells us, have no fear, my child, for if God is for us, who can be against us? Let us know, O oh God, that you are always there. I ask this day, Father, that there's anybody who's hearing us today, whether they're here in this building, whether they're at home, whether they're in another state. Let them not finish this day without finding that victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Find a friend, find somebody you know. Find some way to let us know. Let's make the main thing the main thing that Jesus Christ, buried, dead, resurrected, crucified, just so that we could be in, with you in all of eternity. Father, we lift this whole day up to you and ask that your son and your name be glorified in everything we do. And it is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Hey, you know, Bill, uh, one of the things I, I know a lot of people have appreciated in this season is, and, and Shelly, I'm so grateful that you are a part of our community because the worship is such a central part and, and sometimes it can be like a lifeline. And so I know that for me, 15 minutes at the beginning of a service and in a couple of songs at the end just isn't sufficient. So when can we get together to do a little <laughs> bit deeper worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> so on February 26th, there will be a that worship. Would be, that would be this Friday, right? That would be this Friday. Hey, all right. It is this Friday. And we're going to have a time of worship, prayer, scripture readings to go with the songs. Just a time where we can just lift up and praise the name of Jesus. Bring your cares. Bring the things that you want. If there are things that you would love to be prayed for on that night, we would love for you to go to pastoratlighthouse.com and be able to Lighthouse Community and be able to let us know. Because at 7 p.m., we're going to start worshiping. And let's hope that Shelly knows that there is supposed to be a stop time. Okay. Just saying, because okay. maybe there will be and maybe there won't be. We don't know what okay. she's going to do. Okay, so I said it was going to be an hour, but the thing I sent you could easily be four hours. Oh, very so we'll, easily. We'll deal with so, it. You yeah. can leave if yeah. you get tired. Yeah, that's right. We're going to shoot for an hour. So be with us February 26, 7 p.m. We can allow so many in this building, but we have the other building if we need it. And we also, if you're at home in another state, feel free to join in with us. We will be streaming that service as well. God bless you all. I look yeah. forward to seeing you. Yep. So there That'd you go. Great. We are, we are going to be gathering this Friday at 7 p.m. And the Holy Spirit will let us know when we're finished. Uh, but if you want to come, it's going to be in the sanctuary. If you're not able to come or you don't feel comfortable coming yet, that's totally fine. We're going to be streaming it on our, on our YouTube page as well so that you can join us from home. Uh, we hope that you will. Now, we are going to be diving back into our series as we're kind of slowly walking through the Gospel of John. And I don't know about you, but for me, I've, I've read this book probably more than just about any of the other books in the Bible. 
Uh, it's certainly more than any of the other Gospels. This is the one I started with on my faith journey. And it is one that quite often when somebody is exploring this idea of who is Jesus and what is he about, this is where we point people to, is to the Gospel of John. But I'm seeing things, you know, I've, I've been walking with Jesus almost for four decades now. I am seeing things in this gospel that I've never seen before, and it feels so pertinent to where we find ourselves in this season. And last week, if you haven't been able to listen to it yet, you can always find the message on our YouTube page. It's live streamed there. You can also listen to it uh, from our webpage, lighthousecommunity.com. But if you we, last week, we dove into perhaps the most beloved verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. And we really kind of looked at it as God's Valentine letter to us. And we took it apart piece by piece because it's so familiar that it's almost like one of those things where it's audacious, but it's become so familiar that it's lost its ability to sound audacious. It is so powerful, but we're so familiar with it that it's lost its power. And so we just wanted to kind of begin to recapture that. But here's the problem I find. One of the problems I find with modern Christian approach to Scripture is that we have very short attention spans. I mean, think about this. If we say we're going to be worshiping for an hour on Friday, you're excited. Shelley insinuates that it could go longer than an hour, and you're like, ah, I'm not sure I have the time for that, right? Because you got to fit it in with everything else you've got going on. There's things on Netflix you haven't watched yet. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, of course. So we have short attention spans. And so what we do in our culture these days is we tend to devotionalize Scripture. And what I mean by that is we take a verse, or sometimes we don't even have the patience to do a whole verse. We take a portion of a verse, we rip it out of its context, and then we look at it and we say, what does this say to me today? And a lot of times we give it our own spin because we have to be original, right? We, 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 scripture's speaking to me. And so we ultimately make scripture say whatever it is that our hearts want to hear. And in so doing, we can accidentally make God's word more into our word. And so all that to say, context is crucial to our understanding of Scripture, because if we do not understand the context into which a verse is written, then we can twist it to say anything that we want. We can twist it to support any position that we want. And I'm sorry, but the, God's Word has been twisted to support some awful things. Some of the reason why there's so much bad theology and so much bad behavior by people who are supposedly living out the heart of God is because we have made Scripture into our own word. We have made Scripture bend over backwards and twist around so that it can actually support the very things that make God's heart ache in pain because it is so opposite of his heart for us. And the only way we can protect ourselves from misappropriating God's word and turning it into our word is by keeping it in context, by reading it in the heart of what it was intended to be. So context acts as guardrails to keep us on the straight and narrow to continue to understand God's heart rather than allowing us to take a left-hand turn along that wide path to destruction. We don't want to do that. 
And, and so even though a, we take a passage like John 3.16 and we spend an entire Sunday examining it, it it's straightforward, it's easy, right? But I got to tell you that John 3.16 was not written in a vacuum. It wasn't like... John got up one day and said, you know what? I really need something to post on my Facebook page. What can I write? Oh, I know. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That sounds good. Put that on a bumper sticker. Or if you don't have that long of a bumper, then just go ahead and put John 3.16. Everybody will know what it means. Right? But that's not how it works. John 3.16 is part of a much larger thought. And if we rip it out of its context, then we can miss even the heart of that very well-known verse. And so today what I want to do is I want to insert John 3.16 back into its context so that we can begin to understand how it fits a much larger conversation. So just as a bit of review, because we have been taking a very slow journey through John 3, let me remind you of what's come before so that we can then focus on what comes after John 3.16. Three or four weeks ago, back at the end of John chapter 2, we saw Jesus enter into Temple Mount, into the temple, and cleanse that place. He focused on driving the animals out and turned over the tables of the money changers. Why? Because they had turned God's house of worship, a place that was intended to be focused on worshiping him, into a place that was focused on making money. And it upset him, understandably. So he cleansed that place out. And on the heels of that, one of the Jewish leaders, a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jews, the people, it, it was the Supreme Court and the House of Representatives all kind of rolled into one. One of the Jewish Sanhedrin was curious about who this Jesus was and upon what authority he was doing these things, and he wanted to understand Jesus more. But, he was nervous about being identified with Jesus. And so rather than coming in the light of day, he kind of slid in the shadows of night. And he met Jesus and he had a conversation. That guy's name was Nicodemus. And we looked at the conversation he had with Jesus. Jesus tried to explain to him what the kingdom of God was like and how you needed to be born again spiritually born from above in order to be able to take hold of God's kingdom rather than trying to hold on to the kingdoms of this world. Nicodemus couldn't understand it. For him, it seemed like Jesus was trying to tell him he had to crawl back into his mother's womb in order to be born a second time, which every mother in the room is like, please don't ever suggest that, God. That sounds like a terrible idea. So Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. It is over his head. Jesus knew it would be because he knew what was in people's hearts. And on the heels of that, John begins in, in verse 16. If some of you have red-letter Bibles, you'll notice something interesting happens between verse 15 and verse 16. Your red letters disappear, and as soon as you get to John 3.16, suddenly it's back to the black type. And that's because... Biblical scholars believe that at verse 15, Jesus' words cut out, and John, the, the writer of the gospel, now inserts his kind of commentary about what has just transpired. It's John's words explaining the heart of what Jesus was trying to articulate to Nicodemus. And it begins with these words we know intimately well. For God so loved the world. And remember, when we talk about him loving the world, 
This isn't him feeling warm fuzzies towards the world. This is him choosing to love a world that had been rebellious against him. He loved that world that he had created so much that he sent his one and only son, meaning the only one like him. Whereas we are created, Jesus was never created. He's eternal. He's part of the divine triune Godhead that spoke this world into existence and continues to hold it together. But God sent him, Jesus, into the world so that whoever believes in him, and belief is not just intellectual. We'll come back to that because it's such an important point of what belief is. But whoever believes in him will not perish. We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death, a separation from God. But have eternal life, a restoration of the relationship that you and I were created for. That's John 3.16. It's beautiful. But it doesn't end there. The thought is not complete with those words. Because John continues on for another five verses. And those verses are just as much a part of the point he's trying to make. And if we stop at verse 16, we miss the heart of what he's bringing. And so today what I want to do is I want to spend our whole morning unpacking verses 17 through 21. Because they'll help us begin to appreciate what he's saying from verse 16 on. So grab your Bible. And let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 16, just to get a running leap. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That is the complete thought. And when we rip verse 16 off the beginning, that's like taking the first sentence and trying to like hold it up as the whole thought, and that's not it, and we do damage to the gospel, and it's actually easy to twist it. Here's the point that John is driving at. Yes, God loves the world. He loves it so much so that he sent Jesus to rescue the world. But sometimes, when we're talking about people living and dying and being separated from God, we start to look at God as an angry, wrathful God who's punishing people. And so John follows right up on the heels of John 3.16 with this reminder. For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is an incredibly important point. Because one of the questions people have, one of the reasons why people struggle to embrace God, or perhaps one of the reasons why we look at God as an angry God, is because there is such a thing as hell, 
and people go there when they're not willing. And we go, why would, why would a good, loving God send anyone to hell? Why would he condemn somebody to hell? And what John is trying to make very clear is that God does not send anyone to hell. Jesus does not send anyone to hell. In fact, God went out of his way to rescue us from hell. He sent Jesus to do what we could never do for ourselves. The analogy that I think of when I'm reading this uh, is one I pull from the decade that I spent as a Newport Beach lifeguard, right? It's, it's of people who are drowning in the ocean, confident of their abilities to swim, but pulled out by a riptide, and slowly, as they try to make their way back to the beach, they find themselves becoming exhausted. And God, being the divine lifeguard, sends Jesus, go and rescue them. And so Jesus swims out to them with a cross-shaped buoy, and he tries to hand it to them. And anyone who's willing to grab hold of the buoy and allow Jesus to rescue them will be saved. But the reality is there's some people who refuse the buoy. Some people who say, I don't need it. Now, you might scoff at that. Who would do that? I can attest that there are people a lot of times I would swim out to who were at the end of a riptide who didn't even recognize they were in trouble. And I would swim out to them and try to hand them the buoy, and they'd say, I don't want it. Because somehow it would make them feel less of a person or perhaps they didn't even recognize the danger that they were in. I even had one guy one time straight up reject it because the buoy would clash with his boogie board. I ultimately pulled him in and he needed it. But there's a lot of people in our planet who are okay with the idea of God rescuing them, but, but they have a problem with the fact that Jesus is the only way. Seriously? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus can be a way to God, but there's got to be so many others. Why would God only make one way? As if they're, they're frustrated that God only sent one lifeguard rather than every, every way being a, a way to back to God, right? But God is very clear. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We are a people who are born into a world that is in open rebellion to our creator. We are created in his image. We have an unbelievable value to him. He loves us. Not because we've earned it, but because he chose to love us. And if we have a problem understanding why he would choose to love us, let's just change the metaphor very quickly. For those of you who are parents, imagine for a moment that your son or your daughter is drowning. And for those of you who don't have children, imagine that one of your pets is drowning. Would you not do everything in your ability to try to save your loved one? Would you not put your life on the line? I certainly would in a heartbeat, without any question. And I'm a selfish, fallible human being. I've got a father who loves me even more than I could ever possibly love my own children. And he did that. He loved the world so much so that he sent his one and only son part of this Godhead 
the, the divine word through which he had spoken the world into existence and held it together, he sent that word into the world to redeem the world. That's how much he loved us. He didn't send Jesus to look down on us, to condemn us. He sent Jesus to save us. Now, how are we saved? How do we take hold of the buoy? John uses the word, we've got to believe. We have to believe. But what does that mean, right? Last week, I mentioned that belief is more than just intellectual assent. We can't just say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus can save me, and that's enough. That'd be like saying, yeah, I believe that the buoy can hold me up while I keep my arms crossed or I continue to paddle. I believe that the buoy can can save me. I believe that the lifeguard can pull me in, but we refuse to take the buoy, then do you really believe? It would be like me suggesting, I believe that this table can hold me up. I might even believe that this table can hold me up, but I bought it at Ikea, so it's probably made, you know, from, from chips of wood, held together by glue. It certainly can't hold up my post-COVID body, even if I believe it can. I I love, Lee Strobel writes at one point, um, I'll, I'll just tell you, do we have it? Can we throw it up there? There we go. I love this. This is from Lee Strobel. He says, faith is only as good as the one in whom it's invested. I can tell you that this table can hold me up all day. In fact, I can believe it with every shred of my being. But unless this table is capable of holding me up, then I'm going to look like a fool in pain. When I tumble down onto the stage with pieces of, of, you know, sawdust raining down around me, some of you will laugh and some of you will wince and some of you will say, well, it's, it's been years coming, like we've just been waiting for him to stumble and fall, but it would happen. In the same way, some of us go through life thinking that we are capable of saving ourselves. You know, one of the great ironies, one of the great ironies of our faith is that Jesus came to save everyone, but not everybody took hold of Jesus. Because only those who think they need a savior are willing to take hold of Jesus and allow him to save them. And way too many men and women in this world think that they are capable of holding themselves up, think that they are capable of saving themselves. The reason they won't grab hold of the buoy is because they don't think they need the buoy. The reason they won't take hold of Jesus is because they don't think they need Jesus. They will save themselves, thank you very much. And there were a lot of people in Jesus' day that had that mindset. Nicodemus was one of them. Many of the Jewish leaders fit that bill. They've been waiting for their Messiah, but they were convinced that they ultimately needed to save themselves. They were convinced that God had given them everything they needed to climb into his good graces. They were convinced that the way to God's heart was through the law. And it was dependent upon them climbing it and keeping it and doing a good job of keeping it and getting other people to keep it. And so they became absolute, obnoxious legalists. It wasn't good enough to have 360-some-odd laws in the Old Testament. They added thousands of them on 
to make sure that they never even got close enough to the edge of the cliff that they would fall off. Or to change the analogy, they were so convinced that if any Jewish boy or girl got too close to the pool, they would fall in and drown into sin. So they built fences as far back away from the pool as they possibly could, rule upon rule upon rule. And that's what they were known for. But one of the things that we're reminded in Scripture over and over and over again, and I think Paul articulates really good in his letter to the Romans, so let, why don't we go ahead and look at that one verse, is this. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Nobody, regardless of how well you keep the rules, will be able to earn their righteousness. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law was never intended to save us. The law was put in place to expose how desperately we needed a Savior. And I've used this analogy before. I will probably use it thousands of times again, so let me just go ahead and remind you. The law was never intended to be a ladder that we could climb to reach God. Rather, the law is much like the x-ray machine at my dentist's office that shows me the decay so that I am willing to go and sit down in the chair and let the dentist drill and fill. The law was put in place to expose the decay in our own hearts so that we would run to the only one who could deal with it, so that we could be restored back into relationship with our Father as he intended for us to be. But some of us don't think we need it. Some of us are convinced that if we just tried harder which the world calls moralism, the Bible calls legalism, if we just leaned into our ism a little harder, we can save ourselves. Because we're good enough people. And as John is reminding us, no, you're not. Because we can't save ourselves. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, whoever reaches out and grabs hold of Jesus, like the person who is drowning grabs hold of the cross-shaped buoy and trusts the ability of the lifeguard to pull him in, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Well, it says right there that God will condemn them if they don't take hold of Jesus. No, 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 no. Let me be really clear. God doesn't condemn anyone. Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. We are already dead in our sins. Like a person who is at the end of their energy, out at the end of a riptide, who is drowning. We are dead men and women walking. And God has done everything needed to rescue us. But if we are not willing to take hold of him and trust him, then we are spiritually dead. Even if we don't know it yet. Even if we think, doing a good job. Been keeping up with the Joneses. Even kept my head above water during COVID. I'm fine. But you're spiritually separated from your father. This was not what he intended for you. And in a word, you are dead. You are condemned already, even if you don't realize it. Of course, 
as we're talking about God saving humanity, that seems like a really good thing, but how can we account for people who refuse to take hold of Jesus? Well, that now is what John turns to in the latter half of this section, in verses 19 through 21. So let's go ahead and read why. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So let's stop there for a moment. Because he he reintroduces us to a theme that he started back there at the very beginning of his gospel when he said that Jesus was the true light that was coming into the world, but the world didn't recognize him. He now says that this is the verdict. The light has entered the world. Jesus came as the the light of heaven to shine, to radiate truth into this world, to expose the brokenness of this world. To use the analogy of the ocean, he is like the lighthouse, the beacon that is continuing to remind people there is a safe harbor, but if you continue on the path that you're going, you're going to dash your lives against the rocks. Go this way. Follow me. But there's a large portion of humanity that is resistant to submitting to the light, to following the light, to trusting the light, to stepping into the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Put another way, sin has been the way that we have approached the world. Self-sufficiency is so stinking addicting. We have been trained to be self-sufficient. We have been trained to figure it out on our own. We've been trained. If you screw up, make it right. Do it on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever the heck that means. Right? As if we are somehow capable. We have held on to things that have been our solace. Addictions that we have run to in our time of need just to anesthetize our heart because it hurts to live in this world. It hurts to be aware of our own brokenness. It hurts to be hurt by others. It hurts to not feel in control. And so we run to things that we think can save us, whether that be a bank account or a career choice or things that we can just use to numb the pain. Like Amazon. Got a shop, right? As we drown in stuff, only Americans would come up with the word stuff. Only Americans would need storage to put your stuff so you can fill up your houses with more stuff that you don't need. We anesthetize ourselves. We kill the pain. We hold on to these things because we think that these are the things that make life worth living, and all the while they are poisoning us. And Jesus says, hey, can I have those? And like Schmeagle, with our precious, right? Like we don't even realize we're doing it, but we just start like, my precious, like no, you can't have this. You can have everything, but not this. Don't ask me for this. And there are a lot of people, a lot of people who go through life saying, Jesus, I desperately need you. I want to take hold of you, but I but I, but I, 
I have no hands to hold on to you with because we are gripping, white-knuckling the things that are killing us. funny thing about the light is it's exposing, isn't it? I think one of the reasons why we are so hesitant to come into the light is because it's uncomfortable to be exposed. It would be really easy if Jesus was a gentleman about it and he shone the light on the outside world to expose all of the dangers there so we could pick our way around it. But unfortunately, he tends to start by shining the light on ourselves, right? On our own imperfections. Rather than showing us all of the imperfections out there, he starts here. Rather, when he enters into Jerusalem, instead of going to Herod's palace and pointing out what a hypocrite and what a fraud he is as the supposed king of the Jews, he goes into the temple and he begins to purge that place. And so rather than the Jewish leaders getting excited because here's their conquering king to, who's, who's coming to throw off the yoke of Rome, he's challenging them and the ways that they have situated their life. And they reject him for it. But he does the same thing with us. Rather than just showing us the dangers out there, he starts by showing us the dangers in here. Rather than just exposing the, the fake idols out there, he starts with the idols in our own life. And that is stinking uncomfortable. And so no wonder so many people run from the light rather than running to the light. It is humbling and terrifying to be exposed. It feels awful to rip off the bandages and see the gangrene that has been allowed to start there. It doesn't feel good when I go to the dentist and sit down in the chair and he goes, oh, you got three more cavities. You might need a root canal. I don't like it so much that sometimes I would avoid going to the dentist for a year or two. Right? How many, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you avoid going to the dentist because you're afraid of what the dentist will find? My dentist is watching right now. Hi, Dr. Folico. Lord knows I put you in a higher tax bracket, right? We, we appreciate the dentist, but we don't appreciate when the dentist actually has to work. We would... It, how many of you will avoid doing th like normal things like flossing every night and taking really good care of your teeth, and then the night before you go to the dentist to get your cleaning... That's the best time you floss ever, right? You take your time as if we're somehow trying to impress our dentist. I mean, my dentist went to USC, so I could easily pull one over on him. Just kidding. But we can't pull one over on God. We don't come to God to try to impress him. We come to God because we recognize that we've reached the end of our rope and we need help. We step into the light, not because we've got it all together. And so we're like, hey, I've shown up. I've arrived. Give me some accolades. We step into the light so we can do what light does. Purify and heal. Like when you go to the doctors and you've had a bandage over a wound. And the first thing that she will do is pull the bandage away to expose the wound. 
Have you ever had a doctor tell you, you know, what you, want, you need to do is, you know, put, put some Neosporin on her, but from time to time I need you to pull it off and just let it air out and let the light shine on it. Light is incredibly healing, but it's also ex- incredibly exposing. And it can hurt to see the wound, and so sometimes it's just easier as human beings to keep it covered up. And that's why so many people avoid the light. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You know, here's the irony that I find in scripture. You would have thought that the very first people to come running to Jesus and bask in his light were the religious elite. And the people who had been studying God's word and knew it backwards and forwards. All of those disciples and rabbis who had memorized, quite literally, the entire Old Testament. Had it memorized. It was all in there. Knew every single word. And yet had lost sight of the heart of it all. They knew every word by heart, but they did not know the heart that it pointed to. They'd missed the heart of their God. And so Jesus showed up to shine light on the true heart of God, to expose the ways that they had twisted God's word to support legalism as opposed to exposing their imperfections and their desperate need for a savior. And when Jesus challenged them on it, rather than stepping into the light, they killed him. How often? When we are reading God's word and it penetrates right to the heart of where we're at, how often do we want to just close it and put it away and move on and maybe go to one of our drugs of choice to just kind of rather than taking the courageous step of peeling the fingers of our heart around that thing and giving it back. Now, we, it would be really easy, by the way, for us to read this section and come to the conclusion that John is talking about people out there, talking about a sinful world that is unwilling to bend a knee, but remember, context is crucial. And the most natural group of people he's pointing to in this passage aren't the unbelieving world or the pagans or the people out there. Because remember, Nicodemus, as a representative of the Jewish ruling group, of the, the, the experts on the law. Nicodemus has just shown up in the shadows to ask Jesus some questions, but he can't get past his own self-sufficiency. And now John is talking about how Jesus has come into this world to be an exposing light, but people love darkness too much to come into the light. And so the irony of scripture is that the people who grabbed hold of Jesus, as we're going to find as we continue in his gospel, <laughs> were the Samaritans who weren't even considered worthy of worshiping God by the Jews, um, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors. Could you imagine somebody from the IRS loving Jesus? Maybe even attorneys would be thrown in there at some point. Right, Dad? people who root for the Yankees, Frankie. I'm just saying. Even they and people who are Raiders fans, they can come to Jesus. 
They are the ones who are willing to step into the light. And the ones who are self-sufficient are not. What's your point, Eric? The invitation of John 3, 16 through 21, the invitation of this passage that we're looking at is to stop drowning in our self-sufficiency as if we can somehow save ourselves and step into the light to let go of the things that we've been holding on to that we think give us life that all the while are poisoning us and hindering relationship not only with God but with the people around us to step into the light and be known. Now how do we do this? Or perhaps a better question to start with is, what posture does it require in order to do this? There's, there's probably many, but let me identify three of them. Posture number one that is crucial if we're going to do this is humility. It takes humility to recognize our own need for a Savior. It requires us to acknowledge, I can't save myself. And that is a very un-American statement but it's the truth. Posture number two. It requires confidence in the one in whom we place our trust. It requires confidence in the source of the light, namely Jesus. Going back to that quote by Lee Strobel, faith is only as good as the one in whom we place it. This table can't hold me up. I can't hold myself up, but he can. And it's not just a confidence in his ability to save us, but the reason for his desire to save us. Jesus didn't come with his arms crossed like he's some cosmic traffic cop disappointed with us screwing up. Way too many of us have grown up in families where all they saw from their parents was disappointment. And it has shaped our perception of how our father feels about us. But our father loves us. And it's out of his love for us, he sacrificed everything to save us. So you can have confidence that he's doing it because he loves you. My kids don't recognize. I, I just have to admit, I think sometimes my kids see my disappointment more than they see my joy. And that breaks my heart. And I gotta say, if with any one of my children were drowning, there is not a moment that I would not place my life in line, on, li in the, on the line to save them, to rescue them, to do anything I can to protect them from being hurt. And our Father loves us even more than I love my sons. So we can have confidence that not only does he love us, but he is capable of rescuing us. And then the third posture, and this is probably most crucial for those of us who have been walking with God for a while. This is the most crucial posture when it comes to us being exposed by the light. We need to remain committed to being purified. Because the light not only it exposes, it begins to heal, and that can be really uncomfortable. It can be incredibly uncomfortable to be exposed. Incredibly uncomfortable to have the things that we are ashamed of dragged into the light. But that's the only way to heal. <laughs> um, to change up our analogy for a moment. Imagine you're inviting somebody over to your home. Imagine you're inviting Jesus to your home. Well, how do you normally get ready? 
you start thinking about where is this guest going to go, right? You go, the guest is going to come in through the entry. I've got to pick up all the shoes. I've got to pick up all of the jackets that are laying on the ground, all of the detrius of life that just accumulates there. I should probably even sweep a little bit. And then you, you look at, they're going to go from there through the hallway, so I've got to make sure the picture frames are, are straight and fix that hole in the wall. And, um, and then you get into the living room, and oh man, this place is a pigsty. So you start grabbing stuff, and you go, what do I do with it? Ah, shove it in a closet. You make sure you lock your bedroom door because you certainly don't want them going in there. It's a mess. And you can't clean it all. And maybe they're going to go in the kitchen, so you spend some time on that. And you, you spend some time where you're going to have a meal. And, you, and, and certainly the bathroom. You've got you to spray some Febreze in there. Right? Put on a candle. Making it appropriate for your guest. But then there's all of those places that you, you pray that the guests will not go. Certainly the closets. The rooms that you have shoved all of the stuff that would normally be laying all around, right? You, you, you turn off the light and you close the door and you just pray that they don't accidentally walk in there. Guys, there way too many of us treat Jesus like a guest. We try to put on a good face. We invite him into certain portions of our life, but there are other portions that remain off limits. But it's interesting when somebody actually moves into your home. They go from being a guest to being a resident. Suddenly you start treating them different. They get to see the ugliness. They get to see the messiness. You don't spend quite as much time trying to clean yourself up and put on a good face. Instead, you be more real, authentic. Jesus isn't a guest that just comes for a little bit. You don't just clean yourself up to come to church and then somehow leave Jesus. If he truly is who you think he is, if he truly is your savior, then he gets to come into every part of your life. And that means throwing open the closets, allowing him to even come into your bedroom and into your own personal bathroom and trusting that he will help you clean house. It requires peeling the fingers of our heart away from the things that we've been holding on to that have been gripping our hearts, that have been controlling us for way too long. The things that are causing us to drown in our own self-sufficiency. The things that have been deadening our heart. You know what I'm talking about. You know the things for you that you've been holding on to, gripping white knuckling like Schmeagel. You're precious. Your grip on life. Your drug of choice. I want to invite you right now to just take a moment. Maybe even want to put your hands in front of you like I've got and consider what's in your fist. What have you been holding on to? What have you been trying to, to hold on to in order to get through life, to just get through this day? Are you willing to peel the fingers of your heart away from it? And entrust it back to God. I'm going to pray. And guys, I'm going to pray for myself. Because I need it. I don't stand up here with as somebody whose closets are clean. And whose bedroom is all in order. I stand up here with somebody who... The, the closets of my life have their own junk. And so I'm just going to pray. A prayer of submission. And if this echoes 
the cry of your heart, then I welcome you to pray the same words or pray your own words. Father, thank you for loving me. I don't feel all that lovable. Thank you for doing for me what I can't do for myself. God, I acknowledge these things that I've been holding on to. These things that I've been putting my trust in. I've given them way too much a place in my heart, in my life. And I'm ready to let them go. But I need your help. I trust you. I choose to step into the light and let you clean house. I choose to stop trying to doggy paddle my way back into your good graces and just grip tightly to that cross-shaped buoy that you have sacrificed everything to give me. Jesus, I trust you more than I trust these things. Break their grip on my heart so that I can live in the light as you are in the light. Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
but we don't have it all together. We don't follow Jesus because we have it all together. We follow Jesus because we're the first to say, I desperately need a savior. At least that's me. And so would you stop running? Would you stop striving? Would you stop trying to reach for something that will make you enough? You are enough. Psalm 139 reminds us, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows every bit of your life, every bit of your broken path before you ever breathe your first breath. And into that reminder of how valuable you are to him, may we simply come as men and women who recognize our own limitations and our own inability to save ourselves and say, Jesus, I need you, desperately need you. Maybe we echo the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me and know me. Know my innermost thoughts. Expose in me any way that is not in line with you. Any cupboard, any closet that is stuffed full of my own self-sufficiency and the things I've been gripping onto to help get me through one more day. May I find my hope in you. May I find my identity in you. May I find my purpose in you. Help yourself to my life so that I might be a more accurate representation of your heart into this world that is hurting. It needs to see the light so that they too find you. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey guys, we want to invite you on Friday to come and worship with us. We'll be here if you feel comfortable coming. Otherwise, we'll be on our YouTube uh, channel. If you can't join us in person, bring your face mask if you come. If you have prayer requests, we want to know. We want to carry them with you. So you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If there are things that you don't want to let us know about or ways that we can be supporting you in this time, you can also let us know at pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Furthermore, if you want to give, you can do so by going to our website, lighthousecommunity.com, or you can go on to our app. In order to get that, you go to 77977 on your text message, and you text LCCCM app, and it'll get it. Or you can go to your doesn't matter. If you have a question, email pastor at Lighthouse Community and I'll explain it. I love you. Have a wonderful week. Hope I'll see many of you on Friday. Have a great week. Ah. Your name is a lie.